This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 28th of September 2021 at home in Wicklow and it is largely a discussion about character and trying to understand what character is and I take a couple of different ideas or analyses of character one from the great American writer Joan Didion and one from the world of karate and I draw on those definitions of character and find myself in in strong agreement with the uh, with the conclusion that they suggest Uh, and I place character in opposition to identity and in opposition to the labels and names and tags that are put upon us which I argue are very reductive and unhelpful over simplistic and totally unsophisticated and do not get to the heart of who we are as people and as individuals Uh, i also find time to reflect on goodbyes that do not get to be said and how painful that can be which is I, i think is very very relevant in pandemic times and we are by no means out of the woods yet so there's a bit of that in there as well so that's it that's what's coming up i really enjoyed recording this episode uh i failed to make one overriding point about character which is that it is a very empowering thing to engage with this idea of self-knowledge and being confident and comfortable in one's own skin regardless of failings and flaws and being able to set aside self-interest to prioritize the needs of others and to enable one to do the right thing and i think that is what distinguishes people in life and in their communities and their societies and wherever Uh, So yeah, that's a point I didn't get to make, but I think that's really at the heart of character just being this very, very empowering, distilling thing that really sets you straight. Okay, there you go. I will be talking to you real soon. See you there. Cheers. Not gonna change my mind Leaving the dream behind Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you're listening to The Clear Out. That was a very emphatic hi. Hi, Dara Clear here, The Clear Out. Welcome. Uh, yeah, anyway, you are welcome, and I hope you're, I hope you're well, as usual. Uh, that, is always, that is always my wish. I don't... <laughs> it would be pretty bad form to wish you were unwell. I hope you're unwell. I hope you're ill. I hope you're suffering. We're all suffering. That's the human condition, baby. You better get used to it. And I think I think that's going to be uh, an undercurrent of today's episode. I do know, I do know where I'm going, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. That's probably something you could say about life, isn't it? I know where I'm going. It's called The Grave. I don't know how I'm going to get there. 
and hopefully I have a few more years to work that out. Anyway, yeah. So, I was at the river yesterday. I'll start, I'll start with swimming. I was at the river yesterday and there'd been heavy, heavy rain over the, uh, over the weekend. And I stood on the railway bridge overlooking the river and I just said, no thanks. The river was swollen, swollen. It was way up and it was torrenting along and it also, from that distance, looked dirty. And I knew it was going to be bloody cold because we'd had a properly cold night on on Sunday night. And yeah, it just seemed to be the, the sensible decision. And I thought, ah, here, I'll give that a miss. I'll, I'll forego my, uh, my spiritual moment, my moment of reinvigoration, because actually it just looks too bloody dangerous and too dicey. So, yeah, there's a good chance. There's a good chance that I've had my last swim in the river for the year, which um, there it is. It is what it is. Uh, I did get in the other day uh, towards the end of last week and little did I know that that was going to be my last river swim of the year, of the season. I mean, if there's an uptick in weather, perhaps perhaps it'll mellow out again. We'll get some warm days and a dry spell, although that is not the forecast. And then I could get in again. But uh, this morning I took myself down to the sea where, as I've previously mentioned, the sea temperature stays warmer for a lot longer. The river really feels the, uh, the weather change in a much more immediate way. But, um, but the point I wanted to make was the that sense of regret or minor key sort of sadness at not having known the last time was the last time. And that's a very particular experience which highlights how we all, I would argue, how we all have the tendency to take to take so much for granted. So even my handy, convenient little river swim, uh, I take that for granted. I take my health for granted to a certain extent. And you take your friends for granted and you take your partners for granted and your family, probably very much the first in line for the old take them for granted. Um, But yeah, when an experience is taken away or you realize, oh, Damn, I missed I missed that moment to to acknowledge, to 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 give give thanks perhaps, to just be present and there's um <laughs> you know without without taking it to 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 extremes but there's a there's an honouring, there's an interaction, and I can tell you and I may have mentioned it in a previous episode or maybe I haven't, maybe I didn't but I know my last sea swim in Melbourne was mid-April of last year. I mean, we arrived into Ireland on the 20th of April, I think, last year, after our 10 years in Melbourne. Arrived in the early days of the pandemic in a very stressed-out state. 
And the last two nights in Melbourne, we stayed with a, a friend, uh, a good friend from karate, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for putting us up. It was a fantastic weekend. And it was just such a relief to have two days to just sort of decompress before boarding that flight out of uh, out of a lockdown Australia. And even at that stage, not knowing if we would be allowed to board or if we would manage to leave. So it was a very stressful period. Um, but yeah, the the last time I swam would have been the, the Friday. We flew out on a Sunday night. And on the Friday morning, uh, which I think was our last day in our, our house in Melbourne, we, and we were still packing up and cleaning up that day, uh, I went down I had a, a swim in the the Brighton, the Middle Brighton Baths, the Brighton Sea Baths in, in Melbourne. And I was swimming out and I took a moment. I took a moment in that water, the water of Port Phillip Bay. And I took a moment just to say thanks. <laughs> because I knew that was my last time Uh, barring future holidays I knew that was my last time and I knew that in many ways that body of water had been the custodian of my mental health for a decade and I really felt I need to acknowledge this I need to say thank you to this water and thank you to the bath out of which I swam for so many years uh, in so many different conditions um, the sea conditions and, may, and my own my own sort of mental health condition and emotional condition and all the rest and physical condition at times um, but I took a moment to simply raise my hands to my forehead and say namaste and to give praise and to acknowledge that relationship and that is something that my wife and I did this weekend just past for a a friend, a good friend of ours who passed away very unexpectedly uh, at the start of this year. Um, a terrible shock to her friends and family, to her husband, uh, to to so many people that, that she'd had a, a massive impact on. And because of the pandemic conditions like so many other people uh, we are in no way exceptional we had to say our farewells uh, at the funeral via via zoom via uh, vimeo via camera link uh, because of the restrictions of numbers and it just it just is not the same and i would say culturally in ireland there we're very good we're very good at making that space available to grieve making that space available to say goodbye uh, whether you're waking the body and laying it out or simply attending the funeral where people get up to to speak and tears are shed and there's laughter and that that sort of pain of memories of the the departed and however however that farewell continues in um you know whatever form that takes after the funeral after the burial or the cremation or whatever the the ritual is i think we're good in ireland at doing that the right way okay now that's a that's a subjective term i think it is the right way i think 
there's a way to acknowledge death to make peace with it and to make peace with the departure of a loved one and we were many many of us were denied that chance to say farewell to our friend but now that restrictions have lifted in recent in recent months my my wife took it upon herself to organize a little a little concert a little gig at um the 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 husband's house so where our friend used to live with her husband and he's still there and he's not in the best of health himself and hasn't been for many years um but he was a musician he is a musician and my wife offered to organize a gig to to which her family members were invited and his family members were invited and it was a way to have a moment and to say goodbye and to sort of live with the to live with that um that that sort of uh that that remnant of pain of not having got to say goodbye at the time in the way one would have wished and it was a lovely a lovely uh a lovely afternoon in the rain uh, my wife and her musician friends performed on the kind of the deck veranda of uh, a friend's house and the rest of us gathered in the garden under a gazebo that didn't cover everyone the rain was coming down but luckily it wasn't too cold and it was an hour and a half or two hours of lovely music and good vibes and you could feel just the the uh, the love i suppose the love and the grief uh, mixed and intermingling in the air and amongst us and my wife had the instinct the previous night to ask me if i would uh, stand up and say a few words because I'd worked closely with this friend of ours on on a, on a play that she had devised and written and produced and directed and we toured um, extensively for for two sort of uh, world tours in a row um, you know way back when and it was a great experience and testament to her sort of vision and strength and conviction and in any case yeah I stood up and I said a few words um, which was which was emotional um, I was kind of shaking and just struggling to just to keep that emotion where it needed to be so it didn't overwhelm me and I could actually say what I wanted to say and honour honour her memory and yeah I just about managed to do it and it was yeah it was it was a nice moment and I was very I suppose I was uh I was honoured myself to have that opportunity um, to get up and speak in front of her family members and her husband's family and, and a couple of other friends who were present. But that was a chance to say goodbye um, in the right way, which was, which was very important. And after that, I came back here, came back home to the house and my beloved football team were playing and they were playing their arch enemy. So I support Spurs. That's a Tottenham Hotspur to the uninitiated, a North London football team, soccer. And their arch rivals uh, are Arsenal, another North London team. And we were playing in, um, it was in Arsenal's, yeah, it was in Arsenal's stadium. And my, my cousin, who lives here at Hashtag Blessed, in his abode, he's also a Spurs fan. I mean, that's how it all started way back when we're talking uh, over 40 years ago now 
he he supported them and i thought that sounds like a good idea they seem like a cool team <laughs> and four decades of pain later here we still are and i was feeling pretty wrecked and quite raw emotionally after the gig and the farewell and all the rest and my cousin and i sat down to watch our team put in arguably one of their worst ever performances and get their little shiny arses kicked all over the pitch by a team that objectively is not that great but we made them look great because we were so inept and it was bloody awful and i was like i don't i really don't want to end my weekend i do not want to end my weekend with this crap and but you know i I had to i had no choice i had to end my weekend that way with that lingering sense of disappointment and and sickness (laughs) you just feel sick oh my god this team that i love (laughs) they're just so lacking in character they are so lacking in gumption in spirit in fight and at this stage of course you know you're looking at them kind of going and they're just these young men who can't seem to access something very fundamental about being competitive um and without going into the the details of the recent history of the club which involves you know changes of managers and nearly near nearly achieving things but not quite getting over the line and almost touching greatness but falling away at the crucial moment again and again and again which has unfortunately and bitterly led to our team um lending a word to the football lexicon which is to be spursy which fundamentally means to be to be flaky to be a team that bottles it at crucial moments to be a team that rolls over to get its tummy tickled by any team that fronts up to them and sadly sadly it's it's uh yeah if that's the shakespearean flaw of what can otherwise be a a thrilling exciting vibrant um attractive football playing club and has been for many many years um it's 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 hard it's hard to take it it's hard to take it because there's there's truth there's truth in it and it's as they say and many football fans are any dedicated sports fans will tell you it's the hope that kills you it's the bloody hope so yet again lower that bar and you won't be disappointed but how low can it go that's the question anyway a team in transition but i was thinking about it afterwards and i was just thinking about the whole idea of what we what we hang our personalities on what we build our build our identities around um and so for example i could say oh well i'm a spurs fan and that's a huge part of my identity and of course there are spurs fans there are sports 
fans, sports fanatics all around the world who live and die through their team and everything is about the the season everything is about the the weekend game everything is about being at all the home games and getting to the away games it's buying the new jerseys it's following every bit of news it's of course emulating the players that you love in whatever capacity you can if you're still active in sport yourself and it is of course about being part of a tribe about being part of this community with the shared love of a team and a history and a place and knowing that history and knowing that moment and knowing those players who have lit up your life at different stages over the years and that uh, that relationship that can ebb and flow depending on the fortunes of the team but as I as I said there are some people who that passion it, it never backs off and that commitment and that life uh, of being intertwined with the team uh, is 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 a defining relationship and that is just not true it's not true for me and therefore I consider myself a fan but of a lesser variety and I do consider myself a dedicated fan and I do love that club and I have no intention of uh, of walking away. That's my one of my wife's favourite jokes. Oh, time to support Man United. I'm like, oh, don't even don't even go there. Um but I suppose you know what I'm trying to what you know what I'm what I'm interested in is what are these things that we you know we fill out the we fill out the pie chart of our identity with and if i go around my pie chart and i can say oh well okay yes put put it you know i'm a spurs fan put that in there that's probably a good 15 percent of who i am and then maybe you could also say i'm a lifelong film buff i remember years ago in school what a film puff what the hell is that no lads film buff with a b and I, I'm a film buff and I could say I'm a writer and I'm a blogger and I'm a podcaster and I've been a teacher and I'm a karate practitioner, uh, a martial artist and what else? I don't know. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a son, a brother, a cousin, a nephew. I'm not a grandson anymore. Well, kind of. <laughs> that is, I have no grandparents to be a grandson to. Um... I'm a godson, a friend, a colleague. Perhaps I've been a mentor to, to one or two people. Um, and the thing is, what, like, what I'm interested in is, like all those things are true. They're all, they're all in the mix. As I say, they're all on that pie chart, that pie chart of identity. Who am I? And yet I find myself... I, I didn't mention I was an actor. <laughs> that's how far that's receded into uh, into the realm of uh, of, of belief um, about myself. Actor didn't even come to mind, but I'm going to throw actor into the pie chart as well because that, that, that should be there. That deserves to be there. I trained. I trained. I did a classical training. Um, 
and there's a lot of actors still in me obviously but the point I'm trying to get to is that I would never really put myself out there and say I'm this or I'm that and I'm I'm asking myself the question about you know the, the the labels we put on ourselves the identities we assume and the, the the you know also the identities and the labels that are assigned to us or put on us by society or by the people around us um i question the I mean, there's a, I suppose there's a factual, of course, there's a factual aspect to it, like simply going, that's a door, that's a, that's a book, that's a cat, that's, that's grass, that, they're stones, that's the sea, that's the sky, that's a podcaster, that's a writer, that's a teacher, oh, that's a karate instructor, whatever. That's, um, I'm, I'm bashing this place. That's, um, you know, they're, they're simple statements of fact. They're, that, you know, that's how we that's how we identify the world via language and that's not it's not irrelevant but i feel that it's it's it doesn't really tell us anything or what it tells us is extremely limited and it's extremely superficial and i don't think that's truly what speaks to people um i don't think that's truly what resonates with people in terms of how they really think about you it's really just the hat that you wear and you can go back to an earlier episode if you want to hear some more thoughts on hats can't remember what that was episode five maybe episode six um so what i'm trying to sort of scratch at here is Somehow the idea of identity, uh, the, the act of naming, the act of labeling, it is, uh, it is an unhelpful reduction or an unhelpful deflection or sort of, um, it's, do you know what it's like? It's like when you're traveling along your, your main road, heading to, to work or wherever, and suddenly the the road shape is changed by roadworks and you are being siphoned off to one side. And suddenly you're no longer on your path. You're no longer part of the, the, the great movement, the great kind of collective progression of traffic and you know it's probably the only time you'll ever hear me express that commuter hell in positive terms but it's just a metaphor so bear with me the the idea of there's a label and so suddenly we're just going to kind of pluck you and send you down this little path and here's another label so we're going to send those guys down that little path and here's another label we'll put you down that path and what it's doing actually is it's it's kind of creating these microcosms and these micro groups and these micro identities and our lazy our lazy habit of doing this kind of broad sweep this these these brush strokes of oh you're this boom there's a label and now i have you pegged as x y z uh factor s part three whatever and i just go that's it that's your little box i'll keep you there 
and it's this very neat categorization and as i say reduction of of who you are and i think that this is connected to identity politics and I, i'm not going to really i'm not going to get i'm not going to wallow into the 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 rights and wrongs and the kind of minutiae of identity politics and agendas um but i do think there is something worth commenting on and, and what i'm, I'm going to do and just you know permit me this indulgence i wrote uh, a piece for the clearout.com the my blog platform uh, where I've been writing for eight years, nearly nine years now. And the last sort of article think piece I put up there, uh, I called Wishing Others Away. And it was a reflection on this this idea of identity and how we can get overly caught up in the, the fragmentation and the fragmented, individualized struggles of the various different groups that are presented to us via media and whatever other platforms we use to sort of meet the world or hear, uh, you know, hear what's going on. Now, I did touch a little bit on identity politics and woke culture uh, several episodes back. Um, I can't remember what number episode that was, but that was called Wake Up and Smell the Russo's. And I did touch on more the sort of the moral aspect of it there. But I just want to read you some, a few, just a, a couple of sections from what I wrote. And I'm going to bring it back to the, the larger, the larger theme of today's episode, um, which is really trying to get to what's really important underneath all the labels. So what I wrote was, uh, and I think I put, I put a snippet of this up on a little uh, Instagram post uh, a couple of weeks ago. But what I wrote was, when your identity is siloed or ghettoized or ring-fenced, it is a dilution of your power and influence. It is a relegation, a sectioning away, a placing in a box. It is a demarcation that forbids participation in the main game where the prize that is being competed for is to be taken seriously, to be given credibility without qualification, to have acknowledged by merely being on the pitch that you are a stakeholder. And that's what it all comes down to, isn't it? Being invited to the table, having a say, being a part of it. And conflict comes when the gates remain closed. And if a group is waving its banner and making a lot of noise, it's all the easier to identify and exclude, almost like a version of identity whack-a-mole. These separating, siloing, dividing identity tags aren't helping us. They're a distraction from the issues that are impacting us all. Wealth inequality, deregulation, climate change, healthcare, housing and education, food and hygiene deficits, mass incarceration, addiction epidemics, mass shootings, male suicide, violence against women, corporate impunity, and political radicalization and populism. 
and there's nothing exclusive about that list. So I suppose what I'm trying to drive at there is underneath all the all the sort of all the kind of clamoring for uh, assertiveness of identity there's something more fundamental at play but the fragmentation and the separation it I, I believe it plays into the hands of people I mean this is now this is getting a bit sort of conspiracy theory-ish but it plays into the hands of those who have the real power and those who don't want a united populace uh, who don't want true focused politicized cooperation that is directed at achieving the greatest good for all and I would argue that there's a connection here with perhaps the 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 capitalist model running out of steam are no longer appearing to be uh, sustainable and there's you know I, I, I I'm, listen I, I'm not even gonna go there I don't know I don't know what the solution is I mean in my own you know feeble effort um, I uh, the way I put it in the, the, the same uh, article I wrote on the website um, is uh, we want an attempt at some form of harmonious cohabitation with our fellow human animals, regardless of gender, sexual orientation, disability, religion, skin color, nationality, or whatever other identifying characteristic might be used to separate us. And yeah, that's probably... You know, it's probably a little bit utopian, a little bit fantastical, but um, that is, I guess, ultimately where where many of us would, would like to be. And there's nothing easy about achieving that. And I'm not offering any solution or pathway here. However, the main point I'm trying to get to is the labels drag us further away from ourselves. That's, that's my conviction. It, they they're very surface and they don't really strike at the core of the our human kind of drivers they don't strike at the core of 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 who we live with and when i say that i mean the, you know living with ourselves you living with yourself the labels don't get to the core of what that means um as if if someone says you're a teacher and you spend your whole day going i'm a teacher i'm a teacher and your entire internal monologue is i'm a teacher i'm a teacher i mean it's garbage it's nonsense it's it's nonsensical and ludicrous and we are far more complex and interesting and diverse and dynamic and varied and multifaceted than any one simplifying label and i'm going to introduce this idea from 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 karate here because this is something that i think will resonate and i may have mentioned it before uh i've certainly spoken about karate before on the podcast um but in karate we have and this this is you know this is something <laughs> this is something the Spurs squad could do with listening to okay 
in karate, we have a, you know, and this would be true for, I think, a lot of more traditional martial arts, codes of conduct, um, established etiquette of, of behavior, almost ritualistic, um, uh, ritualistic patterns of behavior and dynamics that are embedded in how we train to encourage respect, to encourage care for the people you're training with, to encourage safety as well, and to instill certain ideas of discipline and self-control. Now, in my style of karate, Shotokan karate, we have what are called the dojo-kun, which dojo is the Japanese word for training hall. It's basically hall of the way, the way being karate, the way of karate. So it's a, it's a very philosophical concept, which does, in my opinion, and this hasn't changed over the years of doing karate, it makes any training space sacred. And I would regard stepping into a theatre space or a rehearsal space the same way. I would regard stepping into a classroom the same way. These are sacred spaces where something magical and transformative can happen. And they are all spaces of human endeavour and human striving and human yearning. Um, and humans on that pathway of betterment. And so for me, there is a sacred aspect to that. And shoot me if you don't agree. <laughs> but anyway, the, the dojo-kun, these principles of the dojo, there are five. And um, in, it depends who you're training with. It depends on how traditional the club is. But it is not unusual either at the start or at the end of training or at both uh, the start and end of training depend again depending on the dojo you're training in to uh to declaim the 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 principles uh in big loud voices in a uh a sitting squatting position um in in your sort of lined up formation and they might be declaimed in the language of your country that you're training in uh, or you can choose to to say them in Japanese. And so my instructor in Melbourne for 10 years was a great Japanese woman, um, and she had us recite them in, in Japanese. Now, I don't, I don't speak Japanese. I have karate Japanese, which is quite limited. Punch, kick, strike, block, etc. Turn. <laughs> Get into horse stance. Um, but we learned the, the Japanese dojo-kun, um, phonetically and you'd say them and you'd, you'd kind of take on this very uh, you know strong committed voice to to say them out loud especially if, if I was taking the class I'd say them first and the rest of the class repeat so I'm going to give you the first one and this is central this is absolutely integral to what we're talking about today so the first one in Japanese is and that translates as one, to strive for perfection of character. Now, as it happens, the other four dojo-kun also begin with one, as if to say none of these is more important than the other. But in my opinion, that first one, to strive for perfection of character. If you get that one right, everything else falls into place. And this idea, to strive for perfection of character. Now that's different to saying 
strive to be perfect. That's not the same thing at all. Strive for perfection of character, sometimes expressed as seek perfection of character. Now, I have touched on this before. Um, and my, you know, the way I think about it is karate, uh, karate as a, as a physical, as a physical behavior, as a physical, uh, you know, practice is, is a way of physicalizing the pursuit of this perfection of character. It's a way of physicalizing the commitment to an unceasing effort to improve and learn and get better. And maybe to say get better is, that's, that's probably not the most useful way to express what I'm talking about because that sort of suggests an ascent. And of course you do progress through certain grades, belts, uh, the longer you do karate, if you're training well and hard and in, you know, in the right way. Um, and, but ironically, in my opinion, the further you go, the sort of the smaller you get. And, you know, so what I mean is it's an erasure of self. It's an erasure of the ego. So that, you know, that striving for perfection of character, it's about stripping away all the crap. It's about stripping away all the ego. It's about stripping away the neuroses. It's about stripping away the labels and just getting down, down, reduce, reduce to something that's pure and elemental and irreducible. And so all the years of training, kicking, punching, blocking, doing kata, doing kumite, which is the, the sparring kata, that's the, the patterns or the forms, all that practice, all that refinement, all that, that stepping up, that stepping out onto the floor again and again and again and again. I mean, ultimately, it's all, it's all exercise. It's all an exercise in humility. Because if you have to keep doing it again and again and again, the message is you're, you know, you're not, you're not getting where you need to get. And so it takes on this very Zen quality of it's the doing of it. The doing of it is what brings the learning. The doing of it is what brings the quality. The doing of it is what allows it to attain a greater purity and a greater power and a greater resonance. And that could take a lifetime. Let's be fair, okay? Um, but the, the that, yeah, as I've said before, the, 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 the madness, the madness is to embrace that impossibility, is to embrace the impossibility of arrival. And so it's almost existentially absurd to go, the longer I do this, the more I have to do it. If, uh, if I'm ever to, <laughs> if I'm ever to get to the place that's impossible to get to. And it's, it's a strange form of torture and a, str a strange form of, of masochism. But ultimately, I think it comes down to it comes down to your relationship with 
with discipline and the willingness to 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 persevere and that in in my opinion like that's that's where the character is found and it's almost it's almost like this extraordinary ongoing pursuit not just of the physical actions but it's a it's almost like a an an exercise in lifelong listening listening so it's like you're quieting everything else as i say stripping away everything else all the stuff that should doesn't really matter and getting down to this core state of function and that's where character lies in that core state of self-understanding self-engagement and the removal as i said earlier the removal of the ego and that to me is like it's like you're living your life you're living with yourself as you do and having those interactions with all the people around you and getting on with your career and relationships and adventures, misadventures, whatever. And that is the busyness of life. That is the noise of life. That is the, that is the, the, the landscape and the soundtrack of life. But if we had the ability to just stop everything and identify pick out isolate this background this background noise around what's that what's that noise everyone 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 stop everyone shh listen what's that noise and what you hear is this sort of you go what the hell is that it's a didgeridoo <laughs> It's not a didgeridoo. So you get this, you get this noise, this kind of, this kind of whir, this buzz. And what you realize is, oh, that's me. Underneath everything, there's the machine that's driving me. The essential core machine. And what you're hearing is the thrum of the machine. And that is who you are. That is where your identity lies. Underneath everything else. Underneath the job titles. Underneath the family role. Underneath whatever else. The core. That's what we're trying to get to. Down there. If we can get down to that state of, oh, that's who I am. And get comfortable with that. And own it. That is... I believe is a recipe for contentment, a recipe for strength, a recipe for acceptance, a recipe for resilience. And that is, to my mind, an extremely worthwhile pursuit. So in a moment, I'm gonna talk about a particular writer's opinion and definition of character, which I, I think you'll find interesting. But just for a moment, I'm gonna stay in this area of, of labels, 
and how reductive they can be. And what I'm thinking about, I actually have to write down some ideas today, try to get myself organized. <laughs> like th- I, I mentioned before, my pie chart, and I went through the various things and there's probably other things I could throw on there. But I was thinking about, you know, women and, and the mother label, the mother title and how there's a lot of, I suppose there's a lot of affirmative, um, affirmative and affirming and empowered and empowering rhetoric around the word mother or as so many um, American women like to refer, them, refer to themselves as mom, moms, I'm a mom. And, you know, great. I'm like, yeah, great, good for you, well done. And I'm not here for a millisecond to denigrate that role, what a woman does in her role as a mother. Um, although, of course, you know, anyone can be a crap mother too, or a bad father. Um, but um, I, I mean, I, I talk often enough about, you know, fathering and my own sort of assessment of my my choices. But it's a different thing anyway. And, that, and so it is relevant to this. But I just think there's such ferocious pressure loaded into that label for so many women and an expectation that a mother is going to be in some way superhuman and super functional and super, uh, you know, exceedingly competent in the execution of every single one of her mothering duties. And that pressure is, you know, it, it has, it, it's become a sort of an orthodoxy. It's almost, you know, dogma. And it, I suppose it's a way of, I mean, I guess it's connected to feminist ideas um, and maybe this is warping a, f- a feminist message and I, I apologize if that's what I'm doing. I don't mean to. But in a way, it's like saying, okay, so my man went out to work and I'm, I'm the stay-at-home mom and that's, that's a role. Oh, you're a housewife. You're being, that's been kind of denigrated. And it's a pushback from that, you know, that, 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 that reduction of, oh, I'm just a housewife or I'm a stay-at-home mother. And I mean, I'm saying this, by the way, as a stay-at-home dad, uh, you know, fundamentally. Um, but it was, you know, there's been a, this wave over. I mean, it seems to be more prevalent now than ever to push back and go. Of course, I don't need to apologize for being a mother, in whatever capacity that is, and it's attained a sort of a, a superhuman status. And of course, there are positives about that. As I said, this kind of assertion of positive mothering and there is of course uh, you know a very broad skill set um i mean and i suppose if you listed all the roles within what a mother does you know it, it's a huge list now i would argue if you're attempting to be a good father you can throw in very much the same list um and that's you know you can debate that with me if you like i know lots of great dads um and you know i don't think they need you know any less acknowledgement um but the point i'm trying to get to is for many women i presume and i would argue my wife is one of them 
it's incredibly reductive to go, I'm a mother, boom. And suddenly that role trumps everything else. Like the social pressure can make some women feel like they have no choice but to go, this is my number one priority. And so I can never switch off. I have to be an absolutely on at all times mother to be a good mother, not to fail in this role, which is for, it's like ridiculous pressure, completely unfair and unrealistic. And for some women, again, I believe that there is a, a loss of self, a loss of identity, a loss of choice in being in that role or feeling that they have to comply with the expectations and be confined to this very strict definition of super supermom, supermother. And and I think this is relative, uh, sorry, I think this is relevant to what I'm talking about today, that you go, really? You're gonna take away this person's identity. You're gonna remove who they are completely from the picture. All their various interests, all their various interests, their entire history, their their education, their career, their in you know their passions, their talents, their 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 other great kind of capabilities and capacities, uh, their their personality, who they are as a person, their character is going to get removed and just this kind of buff whitewash of mother. I think that must be absolutely maddening. Um, and I, I think it speaks to what I'm talking about today. Um, and just to sort of, you know, to, to, to try and bring this home, um, I'm going to, and this is going to blow your mind. I think it'll blow your mind. It, it, certain aspects of it. <laughs> One in particular, actually. I want to read several shortish quotes from Joan Didion. Now, Joan Didion uh, is is uh, now in her mid-80s, I think, and she is an American writer, an essayist, and a kind of a social commentator who really, uh, I suppose her, her career probably started in the early 60s, maybe even the late 50s. And she was, you know, she's been a, a screenwriter. She's written some, you know, the screenplay for, for some movies. A Star is Born. Funnily enough, the Barbara Streisand Star is Born. She was on that. Uh, one I don't rate, as previously mentioned. Um, she wrote the, the screenplay for her of her own, the, the movie of her own book, Play It As It Lays. Uh, she wrote a book, uh, a, The Year of Magical Thinking, books of essays, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, etc. Anyway, you're all, you know, th- those of you in the know are going, you don't need to tell us who Joan Didion is. But listen, I need to tell myself because really she's a relatively recent proper discovery for me. I mean, I'd, I'd known her name for years and I always assumed she was French. <laughs> I thought, oh, Jean Didion. <laughs> and I was amazed that she was writing American screenplays. I thought, wow, this is a really talented French lady. Um, but no, she's American. And if you want to find out a bit more about her, her nephew, Griffin Dunn, who's an actor, um, who... I always knew for years as one of the, the, the two the two American characters in An American Werewolf in London, which is that 1981. 
who get attacked by a werewolf he actually gets killed very early on but comes back as a as a talking um mutilated corpse uh that movie as a kid i just thought it was so terrifying the, the special effects i couldn't i could barely bring myself to watch them but um it is of course just a, a you know a horror comedy i realize now anyway griffin dunn was in that and most recently i saw him in a brilliant uh, a brilliant comedy series called i love dick which is this brilliant sort of postmodernist feminist take on the modern art world with a great performance by Catherine Han and Kevin Bacon just in this fantastic sort of self parodying uh par- parodying um performance of a like a vain artist you know this kind of cowboy artist <laughs> who's trying to just live his mystique and finds himself attracted to the this 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 female filmmaker who comes to his art festival in it's in texas i think um and there's an attraction between them and she kind of she unmans him really and strips away his mystique but it's so funny and brilliant and griffin dunn is her husband in it and also just brilliant so anyway that's worth checking out in any case he is joan didion's nephew and he made a documentary about her Perhaps not overly critical, but I mean, why would a nephew who loves his aunt make a horrible documentary that, you know, rips her apart? So maybe a little bit, uh, how do you pronounce that word? Hagiography? Hagiography? Hagiographic? You know what I mean? it's, it's It's a very approving documentary, but full of really interesting stuff. And she's smoking her head off and being interviewed by him and reliving her life and she had some really terrible tragedy visited visited upon her uh, as a mother um but on the back of that documentary i discovered her 1961 essay one of her first i think big public pieces that she published in vogue so in 1961 she was only 26 and she wrote an essay, which you can find easily online. Just put in Joan Didion essay. The title is Self-Respect. It's Source, It's Power. That's it. And it's a terrific essay. And I remember reading it. And what struck me was, ultimately, it was an essay about character, even though the title is about self-respect. Um, and I'm going to read you some relevant quotes that I think will reinforce some of the things I've been talking about today. So, again, she was 26. Oh, sorry, the name of that documentary, uh, before I, I hit, hit you with the quotes, the name of that documentary her nephew made is The Centre Will Not Hold. And it was made in 2017, and it was on Netflix. I'm not sure if it still is, but yeah, ch- check that out if, you, if you're interested in a great woman an american woman of letters um it's terrific and she's just a fascinating um and brilliant uh woman anyway early in her essay she wrote this i lost the conviction that lights would always turn green for me so reflecting on her failure to make it into some uh, sorority or you know elite uh, band of female students and I was going, okay, so she's 26 and engaging with failure for the first time or 
not managing to kind of advance her brilliance through life. But then the essay is really built on the back of this failure. So she says, to be driven back upon oneself is an uneasy affair at best. It seems to me now the one condition necessary to the beginnings of self-respect. So in her mid-twenties, she's really having a reckoning with herself and recognising the value of this confronting of oneself and the confronting of one's limitations. And I guess she's asserting a, that it's, it's formative and shaping. Um, but there is something unavoidable about having to engage with oneself. And she expresses that this way. However long we postpone it, we eventually lie down alone in that notoriously uncomfortable bed, the one we make ourselves. And to paraphrase, she follows with that the idea that your sleep depends on whether or not you respect yourself. So how you sleep in that bed, that self-made bed, depends on how much respect you have for yourself. She continues, this idea of you know, so, so, so this idea of self-respect, she, she continues, it has nothing to do with the face of things, but concerns instead a separate peace, a private reconciliation. And her use of peace there is peace as in tranquility or serenity or the opposite of war. So a separate peace, a private reconciliation. And again, that to me brings back this idea of of the, the isolation and of the self-discipline and of bringing it back down to the core. Who the hell am I? What is my engine? What way am I oriented in this world? She continues, people with self-respect exhibit a certain toughness, a kind of moral nerve. They display what was once called character. And I remember reading that and, you know, <laughs> I lit up. I thought, oh, yeah, I love this <laughs> character. Um, so, yeah, they display what was once called character. And she's writing this in 1961, 60 years ago. And even then she's going, the idea of character is is uh, is not used anymore. So she's ascribing to it, uh, ascribing it to a bygone age. It was once called character. And then she defines character. Character, the willingness to accept responsibility for one's own life. It's the source from which self-respect springs. So that is, in a sentence, a philosophy of personal responsibility, a mantra of personal responsibility. And in her opinion, and it's an opinion I share, it is the definition of character. It is the making of your engine. It is the galvanizing of that engine. And it is an incredibly powerful driver. And that is maybe the stuff we should be more concerned with than the external labels. The final sentence I'm taking from that great essay uh, and look, if not great, at the very least, really interesting. And oh, I mean, again, 26, for God's sake. But she's such a great writer and communicator and user of the English language. 
And she says her final thought, um, it's not the last line of the essay, but it's the one that I took. To give us back to ourselves, there lies the great, the singular power of self-respect. And again, if you want to take out self-respect there, I'm putting character. To give us back to ourselves, there lies the great, the singular power of character. When that character is a function of self-respect. And that is about ownership, ownership of self. And ownership of self, that allows you to disregard the labels, to let them bounce off you, to occupy yourself with the things that seem more germane. More germane Greer, no, just more germane. And yeah, that is, I don't know. As I said earlier, that's I think that's at the at the heart of successful function. That is at the heart of having a successful relationship with oneself. And by successful, I mean one that is accepting and honest and one that is hopefully extraordinarily resilient that you can accept your failings, that you can accept the knocks, that you can ride it out and go, I know who I am and I'm good with that. That's a power. That is a power. And not seeking, not seeking the approval of others, but building that relationship on, I mean, as I say, I don't want to say approval of self, you make it dispassionate you observe it you go it is i am who i am it's just an is this is my character this is my driver okay that's it that's it i I, it was a bit of an epic last week all those men's movies um that dragged on for the guts of an hour and a half so uh i'll bless you with a a briefer episode this week however before i finish (laughs) I wanted to, um, I haven't mentioned it because I've forgotten. Um, I've forgotten every time I've been recording. But for the last four or five episodes, I have been writing a a pod poem. That's what I'm calling them. I've been just very quickly composing a little poem without overthinking it, without getting into, is this going to be a great poem? I've been just sitting down after I've recorded the episode. It might be a day or two later. And I've asked myself, what poem can I write that will represent, that will represent a key theme of the episode? And sometimes they're more serious in nature and sometimes they're not. But you can keep an eye out for those. You can keep an eye out for those on, on Instagram or on, on Facebook. Um, so, yeah, it's just an extra little thing. It's a bit of fun. It's just, um, it's an excuse. It's an excuse to make me put out a poem a week. And kind of to, hell with the, to hell with the consequences. But I'm going to read you the one I wrote last week. And, and maybe that will become, maybe that will, be, that will become the, uh, the new way to conclude the ep. I'm not sure. But last week's episode, I spoke extensively about 
men's movies uh, the men's movies that i like and movies that are built around you know male angst and emotional struggle and men trying to overcome their worst selves and access their better selves and i refer to two early movies that i liked that had characters like that one was from here to eternity the other was shane the western and this is what i came up with afterwards this is my pod poem for last week's episode and it's called pruitt plays shane walks this bit is fantastic just watch it's when he it's the way he it's how he there did you see it oh that gets me it gets me every time hmm crying i don't think so shush now don't ruin it i'm feeling things so there you go <laughs> um I, I i remember i remember some years ago I, you know i've been trying to write poems for years and i remember years ago asking myself the question the question I was asking myself, oh yeah, I thought, here's how I put it. I said, what question does bad poetry answer? And the question was, what does nobody want? (laughs) So there you go. There you go. That's, that's, that's where I'm at. Anyway, listen, we're done. Uh, As always, thank you for listening thank you for assigning some part of your headspace to to listen to my my rambles and my thoughts and my notions and i welcome i welcome a discussion i welcome feedback so if you have anything you'd like to say um bop something up there on social media uh where i've put up the where i've put up the episode um on facebook um you can leave comments wherever you like uh, i'm working on building a couple of other platforms maybe there'll be a landing page where we can direct all podcast traffic um and yeah i'm working on a i'm working on a newsletter that's a bit prettier uh but yes you can find me on instagram and facebook and twitter and you can email me at the clear out live uh, at gmail.com but uh, I welcome your engagement, as I say. And if you want to throw me some support, there is a supporter link and also a Patreon link. You'll find those links in the description of the podcast or the episode, wherever you listen. And I'd welcome whatever you can give. So there you go. Thanks for listening. Mind yourselves. Have a good week. I will talk to you soon. Okay. All the best. Thanks. Bye. Bye.